with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. That second verse, verse 31, says that when we praise the name of God and when we magnify him with thanksgiving, he is happy. He's pleased. And uh, I've talked to enough people recently, even today, to know the kinds of backgrounds out of which more and more people are coming in which the concept of anybody being pleased by what they do, not to mention God Almighty, infinite in holiness, is incomprehensible and emotionally almost impossible. And those people come to worship on Sunday morning, and they hear me summon everyone to worship. And the miracle that I believe needs to take place is the miracle of believing that God is smiling. He's really happy with what's going on here. Because I don't think we will ever worship in the spirit that God means for us to worship unless when we look up on Sunday morning or with our eyes closed and our mind's eyes set on the throne of the universe, we see a a father who is absolutely delighted with the efforts of these children. And any of you who is parent who are parents or or who uh, have a niece or nephew or something who's ever done a little piano concert or a little skit at school or a little speech in kindergarten will know it really doesn't take much to please you. It really doesn't take much. My kids have all gone through uh, CE nights at Calvin Christian School. That's creative expression night, I think. And they have to memorize a poem or read something or do something. And uh, we're blessed to have a school in which there are hundreds of good parents. And you can just watch the parents lavish their delights upon these absolutely bumbling efforts of the children to do their best. And if that's the heart of a parent on earth, as Hebrews 12 says, then how much more the inventor of parenthood and the inventor of the hearts of good parents. So I'm going to pray for you now. Those of you who, when you read verse 31, my worship will please the Lord, find a very hard time believing that. Let's pray. This is what I believe you put on my heart today, Lord, to come and do here now at the beginning of this session, namely to minister to people who find it tremendously difficult to see you thrilled, to see you delighting, to see you happy over their worship. Not to mention that you might actually be off your chair with excitement. If it's true, Father, in Luke 15, that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous ones, should we exclude you from that joy? Do we see you as a dower, Father, while the angels are making merry? Oh, Father, grant, I pray, eyes to see tonight into the throne room of heaven. That when we lift our voice in praise alone or in a small group or in this church on Sunday morning, you are really excited and you delight over us and even exult over us with loud shouts of joy, Zephaniah says. And I pray that right now you would come and make that a reality. You would lift the oppressive burdens that make that hard to believe, that you would banish the lie of the evil one out of our minds and our hearts. And then free us, Lord, to think about worship 
and to become worshipers through the time we have together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Something totally, almost totally disconnected with this. I want to send around a um, petition to Dayton Hudson because they are rethinking their decision not to support Planned Parenthood. And if you believe they should not change that decision, would you sign this with your name and address? And if you disagree, let it go by. And I'll look for those at the end. Maybe the last people back there at the back could bring them up to the front. And we'll mail all those in uh, tomorrow probably or the next day when we have attained as many signatures. If you don't know what it's all about, you probably should not sign it. This class is called Public Worship in a Secular World. I have no syllabus for you, and the reason is because I am praying and and preparing right up to the last minute each day. I am only one jump ahead of you in my learning and in my thinking and my praying. And that is maybe a negative for some of you who like structure, but it's also a positive that I'm really wide open to altering the nature of this course as you ask questions. So uh, I want this to be a give and take. I have lots of material that I could easily fill up an hour with tonight. But uh, I want you to feel free to raise your hand and ask a question rather than, like last time, saving them all at the end and never getting to them, okay? So please feel free to. And if I don't see your hand, then say, Pastor John, over here. Let me read the outline for this course that was printed in the earlier course description list. We will discuss the biblical foundations for worship the forms of worship and what worship might look like if structured for varying participants at Bethlehem in the future. This will be both a biblical study and a time for input and discussion on how to experience the truth and beauty of God's presence most fully in our worship together. The leadership of the church longs to meet God with you in the most authentic way in our worship services. This is one of our greatest joys week in and week out. We are eager to be committed to those abiding and changeless realities that give strength to our lives, but also to be sensitive to styles and patterns and sounds and forms that differ among churches, age groups, cultures, social classes, etc. Come and seek the Lord with us concerning some of these things and their implications for our future together. Now, I have somewhat of an outline in my mind for how these five sessions will go. The first session tonight is the why of worship. And then next week, we'll tackle the what of worship. And then in the three weeks following that, we'll tackle the how of worship, which gets more practical as we go along. And if it sounds odd to you to start with the why before the what, which it sounds odd to me, how can you ask why something if you don't know what the something is? I just feel deep down that uh, uh, if I were to go into a long extended lesson on the nature of worship without establishing some profound reasons why to do it, it wouldn't click right. It doesn't feel right. I, I feel like we need to talk tonight about why it's so important. And I'm just going to assume that you've got some general vague notion of what I'm talking about when I say worship. Probably a lot of different ideas in your minds, but I'm just going to reckon with all that difference and all that ambiguity and let it go. And if you want clarity about what I'm talking about as we go along, you can you can ask it. But I'm going to start with the why rather than the what. So that's the general outline. Uh, I don't know whether or not uh, next week's what might expand or contract or the how might alter, but that's my plan. And I see things I can say under each of those five Three categories in five sessions, and I'll be open to adjusting things to your interests. I have five answers to the question why we worship together, why we must, and why it's a glorious thing to do. And I'll summarize them for you very quickly in three words each. Because of God, that's number one. Number two, because of man. Number three, because of Satan. Number four, because of ministry. Number five, because of missions. 
I have explanations and texts under each of those three, five reasons for why we worship. And of course, we have to start with number one. We worship because of God. And under this, I have uh, three ways of answering that question. One is because of who God is. And the second is because of what his purpose is. And the third is because of what he's pleased by. So let's take each of those three. Because of who he is. The basic statement here is God is infinitely valuable. God is infinitely valuable. If you brought a Bible along or want to reach for one in the pew, I want to read some verses from Revelation chapter 4. And I want to draw a connection between the word holy and the word worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Is the song that is sung by the seraphim around the throne of God in Isaiah 6. It's also sung right here by the four living creatures in Revelation 4, as we get a glimpse into heaven of the awesome worship that's taking place there now and will in the future, including us. So I want to read verses 8 through 11. Watch for the words holy and worthy. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night, they never cease to sing. Now mark that. Day and night, they never cease to sing. And if you believe that would get boring, then you need to just step back and rethink what an infinitely worthy God is. An infinitely worthy God never ceases to present infinitely worthy reasons to sing a fresh new song every second of eternity. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, worthy art thou. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and by thy will they existed and were created. Now, holy, holy, holy is one content of the song that is sung in the heavenly worship and worthy art thou is the other content of the song. And I want to make a case that those are almost the same thing by just defining holiness for you. What does the holiness of God refer to that makes it the very center of worship in heaven? Holy, holy, thrice holy is the Lord God Almighty. You all know the basic meaning of holiness. What, what would you, I mean, maybe all of you don't, but some of you do. Tell me what the root meaning of to be holy is. Set apart is the, is the most common meaning. That is, here's the common thing. And you set apart the holy thing. It's not common. It's not ordinary. It's not mundane. You set it apart. Now, there are two ways to set things apart. What's it called when you set apart a person with bubonic plague? Quarantine. What's it called? Or where do you set apart? Uh, where does the United States have all of its gold? Fort Knox. Now, there's two different ways of setting things apart. You can quarantine things because they're so dangerous and so sick. Or you can build a big high brick wall with barbed wire on top and put it in a city or a fort. And that's a radically different setting apart. Now, that's holiness. God isn't holy because he's sick. He's holy because he's gold. Does that make sense? I, I think sometimes when we say set apart, it just communicates nothing. I mean, so what? Set apart, where, when, why? To say set apart communicates very little that makes me worship. Think God is set apart. Well, so what? But if you say it's like being set apart because he's like gold 
And you set gold apart in a, in a very special place because of its tremendous value. The, the economy of the world hangs on there being a lot of gold available, evidently. And if it vanishes or something happens to it, all kinds of chaos enters into the world, which is exactly what would happen if God weren't infinitely valuable in his distinction from the world. So that's my understanding of holiness. And I think I could take you through texts that would uh, show you that God's worth, that's why I connected up with worthy art thou, God's worth and value is virtually synonymous with his holiness. Therefore, the first and fundamental reason for why we worship, that is, why we ascribe worth to God, is because he's infinitely valuable. Let me just weigh, dwell on this a little longer, because I, I want you to feel his worth tonight. You all believe in values. You all have some values. Even the public schools of Minneapolis have values, believe it or not. My son, Benjamin, is now at Roosevelt High School. First time in a public school after eight years of nine years of private school. You believe in that, right? Bert? Now, I took this little piece of paper he brought home called Rights and Responsibilities of Students in Minneapolis Public High Schools. I read it from cover to cover, looking for values. I'm looking for values everywhere. I want to know what makes these people tick, because I don't know how you live without values. And we're in a pluralist, secular culture that claims not to put anybody's values on anybody else, which is crazy, because we have thou shalt not kill built into our laws, and don't steal, and don't perjure yourself, and... Well, we just shot through with values. Well, I found them all over the place in this document. Let me give you a sentence. Under student publications, there's a student advisor faculty, and they talked a little paragraph about censorship. And this sentence, I memorized, nothing shall be published which is libelous, malicious, or obscene, period. Now, I took Benjamin to the breakfast table the next morning. I said, we're going to have a quiz here on value clarification. I'm going to ask you, what are the values behind these three words? Tell me. You tell me now. What's the value behind the word, nothing will be published that is libelous? Truth. Now, there are different ways to say it. But truth is valued behind that word. Nothing shall be published that is malicious. What's the value behind that? Being kind. Put some other words. Thoughtful. I thought of the word good because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind up saying three very famous values in just a minute. But they're all there. So goodness is the opposite of being malicious to somebody, being good to them, kind to them. And the third is obscenity. This was a little harder to get out of them. I said, what's the value behind nothing will be published that is obscene? I'd be interested in what you think the, the value is there. Purity? What? Morality? Beauty? That's the one I thought of. I mean, that, that finished my trilogy of values. Truth, goodness, and beauty. There they are. Everything is there. Truth is valued. Goodness is valued, and some form of beauty is valued. This is not beautiful. That's destructive and ugly and obscene. We won't have any of that. This is appropriate. This is beautiful. Now, I only mention that to say we human beings are built with, with values. We, we can't live without valuing something. No matter what people are saying, as though they don't count or as though they're unimportant, you can't live without them. Now, here's the point with God. God is the fountain of all value. You believe that? God is truth. God is love. God is beauty. All that is beautiful is beautiful because it comes from God. All that is loving and good and kind is that because it comes from God. All that is true comes from God because he is truth. Truth means God. God is 
the source and fountain of all that is true and good and beautiful. Now, if that's true, then you can do some exercises with your emotions and say, am I moved by any truth in this world? Am I moved emotionally by any beauty in this world? Am I moved emotionally by any goodness in this world? And if you are, let your heart and mind then run up the beam into God and let it grow as it goes because it gets wider and bigger all the way up. Unlike most streams and rivers that get wider as they come down. God is valuable because he's the source of all value. I thought, for example, of just listing these things. I tried to think of what people get excited about in the world. Nobody gets excited about God. I just take that for granted. Nobody in the world is excited about God. He's ignored. He's not on the agenda of, of American society which is the greatest outrage in the world. I was talking to a young woman yesterday who's not a believer, and she just kept giving reasons to me of why she and, and the people that she works with who are in social services and in third world ministries are good people. How, how could God not accept them? And I just kept coming back, acknowledging that there are these fragments of the image of God, these fragments and echoes and pieces of, of God that are showing through. But I just kept saying, do any of these people do that for God's sake? Do they care about God? Do they talk to God? Do they give God two seconds of their life in seeking to please him? Do you believe that the greatest and first commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart? And she said, no. And I said, that's the ultimate moral outrage in the universe. I don't care what people do to each other. If they're blackballing God, if they're doing like that to God, that's the ultimate outrage. I lost my train of thought here. Everybody seeks excitement in something. Oh, yeah, that's it. And I want to understand now what works in people's hearts out there. So I, here's my list. And I just related each one to God. Some people get excited about strength whether it's muscular strength or military strength or whatever. And I just say, God is stronger than anything. Infinitely stronger than whatever you get excited about. You know, or something. He's just infinitely stronger. A little bink, and that guy's off the scene. God is strong. You get excited about strength, he's strong. God is beautiful. Infinitely more beautiful than any sunset, any canyon, any forest, any north woods, any Northern lights, any night sky, he is infinitely more beautiful than whatever moves you. He is, he's, if you admire imagination, say, wow, look at that poem, or what a drama, or what a movie, or what a wild and wonderful imagination. God thought up imagination. Anything that anybody imagines, God thought up the imagining power of the imaginer. If you admire imagination, God's infinitely more imaginative than anything you've ever admired in imagination. If you admire discipline, you know, a person who's disciplined, God's got it all together. Let me tell you, he is never undisciplined. He never says, oops, I forgot or will procrastinate. Never. If you like discipline, you've got a God totally 100% in control of his life. If you like kindness, he, that's the essence of God. God is love. Jesus shows the heart of God. And he dies for unworthy people. If you like kindness, how can you not stand in awe of God? If you like sacrifice, when people sacrifice for others, he is the greatest sacrificer. If you like bigness, oh, I like skyscrapers or I like uh, jumbo jets or whatever. God makes everything you're standing in awe of look infinitesimal because he's so big and great. If you like music, God thought up music. He is a musical God. We're going to talk more about music. If you like technology and computers and science, God wrote the book of nature that we are spending all of our time trying to decipher. And when one little human scientist thinks he's catching on a little bit, just remind yourself, God wrote the book. He wrote the book. He knows everything. It's child's play, these computers that we're so wowed by and don't understand. So that's the way my mind goes as I think of worship. What a tragedy that people can't see that God is infinitely worthy to get excited about. Now, that's my point number one under point number one, namely who God is. Now, point number two under point number one 
is God's purpose to be worshipped. God's purpose in creating the world is to be worshipped, praised, glorified. Who can quote for me or paraphrase for me the sentence to that effect given to the harlot at the well? What did God's what did Jesus say to her? Say it nice and loud now, that's it. God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and truth. He is a worship seeker. He wants people to worship him. That's one of the reasons why he's so delighted on Sunday morning or any time you bow and worship before the Lord. He is a worship seeker. It is his purpose. If you've got your Bible, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. This was one of the texts that probably changed my theology as much as anything back in 1967. It was 70 or 71. I can't remember when I first read, uh, worked my way through in detail in this book when I was in school. But uh, I was doing this little exercise called arcing that some of you have studied with Tom Steller maybe and or others, it's just a way of relating the propositions in a text. And I came to see more clearly than ever what the main point of this 14 verse long sentence in the original language is. No, not 14, 11 verse. Starts at verse 3 and goes to verse 14 of Ephesians 1. And I want to show you three phrases. They're the same phrase. One's in verse 6, one's in verse 12, one's in verse 14. Verse 6. Maybe we better start reading verse 5. That breaks the sentence in the RSV anyway. Verse 5, he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Literal translation. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he predestined us in love to be his children. Then down to verse uh, 12, 11 and 12, let's just read verse 12. We who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. That's why you live, according to Paul. Then verse 14, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Why? To the praise of his glory. There it is. Three times, same language in one long Greek sentence. Summing it up, it means this. God does everything he does to move people to praise the glory of his grace. God wants your worship. His purpose is to be praised. His purpose is to be praised. This is the reason he redeemed us. This is the reason he predestined us. It's the reason he is sanctifying us. It's the reason he will glorify us. It's the reason he created us. It's the reason Jesus will come back. The whole sweep of history has this one ultimate purpose, that we might praise his glory, which comes to its apex in his grace. Now, there are a lot of other verses I could use to demonstrate that, but I think I'll just leave it at that and maybe remind you of this striking sentence, which I copied from a book called Touch the World Through Prayer Today by Wesley Duell. There are far more commands to praise in the Bible than there are commands to pray. And we do far more praying than we do praising. Defining prayer there as petition or intercession. There are far more commands to praise in the Bible then there are commands to pray. In other words, God wills, God commands that we praise him. That's his purpose for us. That's my second answer under point one, who God is. God is infinitely worthy. God uh, purposes to be worshipped. And now third, I've already said this in my opening devotional, God is pleased by our worship, Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31. God delights in the worship of imperfect sinners who come to him as empty, helpless, needy people and drink at the fountain of grace. The way to glorify a fountain is to get out on your knees and drink and look up now and then and say, Ah! 
The way to glorify a fountain is not to haul buckets of muddy human labor up the mountain of morality and dump it into the fountain. On your face, helpless and thirsty is a wonderful posture for worship. And if God so grants it by the end of the service or the end of the hour of praise, you might be on your feet so refreshed, so renewed that worship can also take the form of acclamation and positive shouting for joy. But God is so glorified by thirsty saints And mark it, I just believe on Sunday morning most people come unprepared to worship, but desiring to worship. Unable emotionally to rise very high, but longing to desire to rise very high. And therefore, I'm constantly praying behind this pulpit for the fountain to be so delectable that the refreshment is strong enough that by the time we're done, worship can right on through the rest of the day and partway through the week at least, carry you in praise and gladness. Now, my second answer to why worship is because of man. Because of man. The first one was because of God, and now the second one is because of man. And what I mean here is that we were made to worship. We were made to worship. It fits who God is to worship, and it fits who we are to worship. Not to be a worshiping person is to be living out of character. And therefore, to welcome dissonance into your life as a human. If God made you to worship, to be living without A theme of worship running through your life is to welcome dissonance and confusion and uh, disintegration into your life. Because if you make a bowl to hold something like water and you use it for acid, it will probably go bad as a bowl. And we humans are killing ourselves with broken cisterns that can hold no water, trying to make ourselves uh, repositories for kinds of entertainment and excitement through many innocent things. And God is willing to fill that bowl up with what we were made to be filled with so that we break forth in the kind of excitement that you feel at a ball game or wherever you get excited, that we feel that way. And if we could ever get to the point where God fills that void that we were made with, so many other things in our lives would fall into place. So many testimonies to that effect. When a person learns to worship that this, that, and that, and that seem to get right, get fixed. And if we don't worship, things get worse. I did a little study in the original language on a word I'd never looked at before. I invite you to look at Psalm 147, verse 1 with me. Psalm 147, verse 1, which says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, Now, here the the versions are a little different from each other. The RSV says, for he is gracious, and some versions say, for praise is gracious or delightful. But I think we all are together on the next phrase. And a song of praise is seemly. (laughs) What does that mean? What do your versions say? Seemly, comely, becoming, good. Any others? Fitting. All right. Those are all right. Fitting, becoming, uh, beautiful, seemly, comely, appropriate. Now, what's that mean? A song of praise fits. <laughs> Isn't that great? Here you are, a human being. And if you were to say to the universe, why am I here? What am I made for? How am I different from a snail? You know what God's answer would be? You are fit to praise me. That's the essence of humanity. 
That's the essence of the image of God. You are fit. And, and therefore, when, when a song of praise rises, it fits. It's becoming. It's, it's appropriate. It, it uh, decorates. It, uh, it's just a, a proper garment. You know, some clothes don't fit. Some clothes don't enhance the body. Well, a garment of praise is perfect for the human soul. It's perfect for the human soul. That's why we were made. Yes, go ahead. Yes, the answer is yes. It's okay if you shout on Sunday morning. I've tried to inv- invite more interaction and response with amen and yes and mm-hmm. And I like a grunting congregation. <laughs> Especially when you are heralding precious and good things or when you're praying. Last Sunday morning when David Michael prayed his prayer of praise, it happened. Because David carried us right into the presence of God and you couldn't help yourself, whoever you were. Hundreds of people were saying, yes, mm-hmm. And when he was in, everybody said amen. Now, that doesn't always happen, but that ought to be happening, I believe. As far as on your face, I suppose we need to teach and create the freedom so that if you were to turn around in your pew and kneel down, people around you wouldn't say, good grief, what's she doing, you know? trying to get attention to herself or something. We need to create a a sense in which if somebody is moved to go on their face before the Lord, others are not going to be judgmental and condemning. So the answer is yes, but I take some of the responsibility for uh, not having made plain enough or created an atmosphere free enough for you to feel as free as you might like. Um. One thing satisfies this human soul, and that is God. And uh, I could give you numerous texts. Let me just list some of them rather than reading them all. Psalm 73, 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but thou art the strength of my life, my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I sought. One thing I have a desire of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I might uh, dwell in his house and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. One thing will satisfy this man of God to behold the beauty of the Lord. You were made for one main thing. If you don't get that one main thing into your life, all other things don't work. They leave you empty in the end. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as a heart pants for the stream, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Psalm 63, 1 to 4, my soul thirsts for God like a thirsty person in the wilderness or something like that. Those are the texts that, to me, make very, very plain that uh, God is the one satisfaction in the world, in the universe. The reason it is hard for some people to worship is because they've never tasted that. They know in their head that God is good, God is great, God is true, God is lovely, and they've never felt it in their heart. And that's a very great tragedy. And that's what we're striving to overcome. We'll talk a lot more about that. I don't want to load you with guilt about that tonight. I hope to stir up a longing in you because I intend to help you with that warfare, because we all experience it from time to time. I've got a long list of texts here that talk about uh, what Kim was asking about. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Enter his gates with singing. Uh, Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 81, 1, shout for joy to the Lord. Psalm 95, 1 to 3, make a joyful noise to the Lord. The Lord is a great God. Psalm 98, 4 to 6, make a joyful noise. Psalm 5, 11, let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 68, 3, let them be jubilant with joy. Psalm 47, 1, clap your hands and shout for joy, O you people. 
Now, the point of all those texts is this. Worship is very satisfying. If it isn't, we're not doing it right. Worship is very satisfying to the human soul. If you have to force yourselves to clap, don't clap, and it isn't working. If you have to force yourself to say amen at the end of a prayer of praise, don't say it because it isn't working. And God forbid that we be hypocrites. But when it's working, when God is working and when the heart is responding, there is jubilation in the presence of a great God. Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10 talk about a holy feast that they're having. And uh, Ezra says, this is a day holy to the Lord. Put aside your garments of, of uh, mourning and take away the ashes and rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've got a banner in my study at home. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. It's a very satisfying thing to worship the living God. Um, Steve Nicholson, who led the retreat for us over the weekend, posed the question why it is that week in and week out, people come into his church during the half hour of worship at the beginning and they'll just cry through the whole thing. Just cry. It's happened here at Bethlehem. And the way he explained it that was so striking was it's just like coming home for a lot of people. They've been away from the church 20 years, 10 years, 18 years, gave up on it, grew up in some nominal, empty service where nobody meant anything they said. And for some reason, God draws them. And here they sit down and for 30 minutes... People are actually emotionally engaged with their father and they just cry for a half an hour because it's the prodigal saying, this is what I have been made for. This is what I ran from all my days. And it feels strangely, sadly, wonderfully good. The sentence that summarizes my Christian hedonism is... God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It is the best news in all the world. I can't improve on the sentence. I can't improve on the message. I can't think of anything more glorious than that the God of all the universe um, thought up a way of relating to him such that he gets maximum glory when I get maximum joy. I mean, there can't be any better situation in the universe. Can there? Can anybody think of a better situation than that? When my joy is maximum, his glory is maximum. Because he gets the reverberations of value that come from my delight in him. Question. Go ahead, Arnold. Amen. Yeah. The question is, for those who couldn't hear, is... We've just said about worship in the service. What about worship before the service, namely during the five or ten minutes while Leah is playing? And we just we need to teach again and again. We haven't taught for a long time on what to do at that moment. And our our deep desire for those of you who wonder is that not that we be unfriendly with people, but that we be hard after God. Seeking the Lord, seeking power upon me as the preacher, upon Dean and the choir, upon Leah and upon all these visitors and upon each other that needs would be met and the Holy Spirit would come and healings would happen and salvation would occur. That's what's at stake in the prelude. I attended nine churches on my study leave. My heart broke every time because there was so little earnestness. I looked around, does anybody care about what's going on here? Does anybody come here to meet God? Oh, wasn't that a great ball game yesterday? Oh, look at that thing she has on. We walked, I'll just tell you this story to just, I probably shouldn't. I'll tell you half of it real quick. We went to one church, and Noelle and I split up. She went to the restroom, I went outside to a big church, fancy church, great worship, great in quotes. Everybody dressed to the hilt and... Um, big orchestra and TV cameras and whatnot. You don't know the church. I guarantee you don't. It's not First Baptist Atlanta. Uh, she went in the bathroom. She came out, and I had made some unholy comment of criticism, probably, about what I was seeing. To whom? 
to the Lord with all your heart. Now notice those two directions. Mark that now. Do you feel the Holy Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord? That's corporate worship. It's, it's, uh, some of our songs are clearly addressed to Jesus. But even at that moment, it's not wrong to think people are hearing me sing. They're hearing us sing. Visitors are listening. And uh, the people around me who are discouraged are hearing me sing. Or if you're quiet and too downcast to open your mouth, uh, you're hearing them sing. And all of that's ministry, mighty ministry. But some of our songs are addressed to one another. But when we do that and we address one another um, and call each other to do something, don't think that you're not singing to God at that moment. At least I hope you can include the fact that we have an audience of one listening in. And if our hearts are right and I'm saying to, to Dean, praise the Lord, Dean, what I really mean is, God, do you hear this? I love you that much. I value that much. I'm commending you to Dean. You see, it's, these directions are both. In both kinds of singing, we should be going both ways. Ministry is happening. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 talks about being renewed in the inner man day by day because we set our minds or we focus on things that are not on the earth, but things in heaven, things that are not visible but invisible because they're eternal. And that's what we do in worship. A quote from Spurgeon. When we bless God for mercies, we prolong them. When we bless God for miseries, we usually end them. And that is ministry. Blessing God for your mercies draws those mercies out and they minister to you longer. When you bless God for your tribulations, they generally are lessened. Made smaller, made more manageable. Uh, the, the true spiritual significance of them is brought out. So there is much ministry. Oh, we could talk for hours on how worship ministers to people. But last, last answer, because of missions. We worship God because of missions. Remember last Sunday morning with Paul and Silas? What I stressed last Sunday morning... Uh, was that um, Paul and Silas were witnessing to the prisoners by their songs. The prisoners were all listening to these hymns. But here's the one thing I want to stress now. I believe that Paul and Silas, if they sang in a dungeon, sang on the road. I mean, do you think that they only sing in dungeons? So here you got this Luke and Paul and Timothy and Silas and Epaphras and a few others. And they don't have any cars and they don't have any trains and no planes and they walk everywhere. Or they go on donkeys or horses and they go slow. Just about this pace probably. From Troas, you know, from Troas down to Ephesus or whatever. Now what do you think they do all, all that time? Well, they talk and they sing. Because it sustains them in mission. And here's the basic theological reason for why missions calls for worship. Because missions is seeking worshipers. All right? Missions, the goal of missions is to find people whom God is preparing to become worshipers of himself. And to present them the gospel of how to unite with the Father who will receive their worship forever and ever. And he'll be glorified and they'll be satisfied forever. That's the goal of missions. Now, can a church really be an authentic mission church, therefore, and not have mission, have worship at the center? I mean, how inauthentic to say, go and make worshipers and we'll stay here and not do it. It's an unthinkable thing that our desires for our missionaries would be that they create worshipers for the living God who would stand before him with tremendous white hot affection forever and ever while we're not cultivating it at all back home. That's unthinkable. 
And therefore, if we believe in missions, then we will be a worshiping church. Or another way to put it would be that there are commands for all the nations to worship and there are promises that all the nations will worship. And therefore, what we're doing when we worship is just rehearsing the great consummation. When all those promises come true and all those commands get fulfilled. Two minutes for questions. I'm finished. Now, we're going to get real practical as we move along. We'll talk about what is it? What are its various, some of its various forms and so on in the scriptures? And then we'll talk about how, and then we'll get even more specific about our worship services as we move along. But let's pray for each other because uh, I can just tell on Sunday morning by looking at some people and others that they're not in it. And it's a great heartache to me. I don't generally watch those people because they're too disheartening to me. I pick out people who are full, and I just watch them when I open my eyes. You minister a tremendous amount to me, and you disminister to me when you stonewall me like this. Like that. And there are only a handful of people like that, but they've been around for a long, long time, and and, uh, I feel sad about that because it's real tragic. When people can't minister to each other in worship. Let's just go hard after God on Sunday morning and for each other. Let's pray. Father, take us to the next class or home or wherever we're heading now with a spirit of worship. A sense of your magnificence and greatness and unparalleled perfections above all that makes us excited in this world. Transfer, I pray, all the affections that we feel for things that are on the horizontal over onto the vertical, Father, so that we are not idolaters, so that we are not lukewarm and in danger of being spewed out of your mouth, so that we do not come under the condemnation, with your lips you worship me, but your heart is far from me. Grant, O God, I pray, that we would be a people whose hearts are so engaged and so deeply united to you that you would take tremendous delight in our worship, both on Sunday morning and in our families and in our private communion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.